we have always shared everything with them. We've talked to them, we've explained, you know, Dan's been an absolutely brilliant father for daughters. Like, it's not an issue that they're four girls. He just had four children. Hello, you're listening to Life in the Land, a Grazie Her podcast telling stories of women living in rural and regional Australia. I'm Emily Herbert and welcome back to season six. My goodness, have we got some fab stories in store for you. Before we get into it, I'd love to give our gorgeous spring issue of Grazie Her magazine a plug. She's in newsstands now and is an absolute beauty. You can subscribe at grazieher.com.au. On to today's episode with our guest, Karen Penfold. Karen, her husband Dan and their four daughters, Bonnie, Molly, Jemima and Matilda, produce Angus beef from their properties and feedlots across western Queensland. The four girls are committed to life on the land and by the end of the year they'll all be back living and working at home. These girls are grafters. Any given day you can find them studying uni online, preparing for exams, fencing, drafting, feeding, greater driving, maintaining aircraft doing the accounting, dealing with Chinese customers, marketing or teaching at the local tiny school. The scope and skill of this modern-day farming operation over 100,000 acres is utterly remarkable. For mum, Karen, the journey to launching her family's branded beef, four daughters, and taking it to a Chinese market has been riddled with challenges. Looking back, however, Karen could never have foretold how her life would play out, with a childhood spent in inner city streets. Growing up in the middle of Brisbane, um, going to Intrapilly State School, going to, you know, at St Peter's at Intrapilly, then, uh, yeah, no, never in my wildest dreams did I think I would, again, marry the farmer and live on the land. I did do teaching, um, but that sort of wasn't what brought me here. Um, but no, it was never, never imagined that I would be living on the land. No, it would have been the furthest thing from my mind. So interested to know what that transition was like for you. You were 20, is that right, when you uh, first moved to where you are now? I actually did my teaching degree and um, I actually did my prax in Charleville and I just absolutely loved loved those experiences. So I had no intention whatsoever of wanting to teach in, in Brisbane. I just was ready to go. Um, so, you know, my first posting actually was to Emerald um, and I started off as a primary phys ed teacher. So I um, enjoyed doing circuits and going to little schools and um, yeah, teaching kids uh, phys ed. So I probably always had a little bit too much energy and um, liked being active. And so, um, yeah, um, Living on the land probably suits that greatly. In the city, I was always bored and there was nothing to do. Well, I tell you what, um, living on the land, you are never, ever bored and there's always way too much to do and you will never get to the end of the list. I think any kid um, who grows up in the bush knows all too well the danger of saying, I'm bored out loud because instantly mum and dad rustle up a thousand jobs. I think those, those words were sacrilege. They never left my lips growing up. No, you can never be bored in the bush and you can never be lonely in the bush as well, which is something else I learned that um, community in the bush is just, it's golden and it really is a very special place to be. So how did you meet your husband, Dan? Way back at the good old Ecker, my brother actually had attended Longreach um, Pastoral College 
in its day as well. And he and some mates, I think, all headed to Brizzy and I got to know, you know, your older brother's friends, etc. Um, and, and then at the Echo, I actually ran into another one of those friends who then Dan happened to be with at that exhibition trip. And um, that was the beginning of of the end, I suppose. <laughs> or the rest of the story, I should say, not the end, you know. The beginning of one whirlwind life. Yeah, well, where did that, that end take you? Where did you end up? <laughs> yeah, no, we're not at the end. I have to be blessed every day that it's so busy, but if you're not busy, you're dead. So we don't want the end. So we've just got to keep persevering and, um, yeah, enjoy every day and live every moment, which definitely do. So where did you move to when things got serious with Dan? Uh, look, my teaching uh, job was my first, you know, passion. I actually do love teaching. I, I still do. I just love kids. Maybe that's why I ended up with four of them. Um, so I went to Emerald and then from Emerald, I actually came back and, and taught at schools in the area. So um, I, you know, transferred down this way as a teacher. Um, and then we did get engaged and married. And then I just proceeded to stay on as principal at, um, at Glen Morgan State School at that stage. So I, I stayed there for a couple of years before um Yes, we started having a family. So I understand that your oldest daughter, Bonnie, is actually the third generation of Penfold women to teach at the local school, the tiny little school that you get to through the paddock. Tell me a little bit about the school and the atmosphere over there. Um, well, there's a number of small schools around our area. Um, the girls did attend Teal Bar School, and that is a 16-kilometre paddock bash trip, um, which, like all bush kids, um, I think from, well, they all have from grade five when they're all 10 years old, they um, were boss of the car and they drove through the paddocks to eventually do the road. Then you parked your car at the road and you walk through the last grid and through the dip and through the dirt and then you got yourself to school. <laughs> um, the days I taught, obviously, they didn't have to walk um, through the bit and take themselves. So, so I've, I've been there for 20 years. And then ironically, Bonnie, all of the girls did go to school there. Um, so I've taught them all one or two days a week for their whole of their education, um, just in that small school setting. Um, and ironically, Bonnie's now finished her teaching degree and she's currently doing my one day a week as I'm um, navigating the world of export beef and marketing beef. Um, so, yes, and she is now teaching with the teacher who taught her. Um, but to fill in the gap of the three generations, Dan's mum, um, Mary, she taught at Glen Morgan School, which is another small school, at 10 or 15, could have been 20 years. Um, and Bonnie's doing two days a week there as well. So we have the word old, old Mrs. Penfold used to be, and I used to be young Mrs. Penfold, but we've now, I don't really know what we get called now. Um, there's three generations. So um, yeah, there's uh, Dan's mum, Mrs. Penfold, and then myself and I uh, knowing every kid in the community, um, I was either mum or auntie Carr or Carr or Mrs. Penfold. It didn't really matter. They, um, they've all been absolutely wonderful kids. And Yeah, that when your mum's the teacher, there's uh, not much pulling the wool over your eyes when it comes to homework, unfortunately. Oh, I hate to tell you, by the time you get home, you're really over homework. So um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a hard gig to pull off homework when you've School of life. School of, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. No, um, yeah, no, I, I, the only one I probably regularly ejected from the classroom would have been Bonnie. So, um, so <laughs> all the karma. The others all learned, yeah, pretty quickly just to not do the wrong thing. Whereas Bonnie was just regularly told to go outside and have a drink and think about things. So. <laughs> well, Karen, tell me about your enterprise and, and how your feedlot works. 
Um, Emily, we um, are, we were part of a larger um, family business, um, which did involve Dan's mother and father and brother. Um, at some stage, at one point there, his sister as well. Um, so about, um, look, 1995, we did actually sort of um, start to separate that family partnership down. Um, so we, we did proceed through um, succession way back then. Um, and we probably had, a, we did have a lot of challenges. Um, there's no doubt about that. And it was an incredibly stressful time for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so at that stage, we did go out on our own and that was Dan and myself and four little girls then um, from, um, they were probably seven, five, three and one years old. Um, and um, that was probably though the making of us because, um, you know, we did everything with the girls. So whatever happened, if you're in cattle yards, um, whatever had to be done, um, four little redheads came along um, <laughs> in whatever shape or form in fairy skirts and high heels or boots and hats and, all secondhand clothes. They look at the pictures these days and wonder if they were ever given new clothes, but I don't think they were. Um, so, uh, yeah, so really in 1995, we began our own business for ourselves. Uh, prior to us going out on our own, as a family, we'd started a feedlot at Mamaree, which was the original home place. Um, so when we did move to Bombine, which is only 10 kilometres down the road, we did um, build and start another feedlot. So we actually, we actually did custom feed um, some cattle just sort of while we started building our own numbers in our own feedlot here. Um, so, you know, fast forward uh, 16 years, um, we have continued feedlotting and we have expanded that greatly. And we now have four places um, across across Queensland, I suppose. We've got two around the Meandara district, We've got one south towards St George Torwood area and another place at Yarraka, south of Longreach. We just, um, I suppose we've got four girls that have a passion for the land and, and want to be here. So any opportunity for us now to grow our business and build our business, we give it a crack. There's no clear cut path for succession when it comes to succession and anybody listening to this, there, I'm sure there are, there are plenty of people listening who might be going through the throes of that themselves uh, at the moment. What do you think, well, in terms of advice that you would give to people who might be facing those challenges I imagine that there, there are some scary times striking out on your own, but also some exciting elements as well. What really worked for, for you guys and, and what was that experience like? Um, they're such huge questions, Emily, but they're so important. Um, from, I suppose, round number one of succession, we've just, we've learned so much. And I suppose because of that, communication is just the number one golden key. Um, teamwork, you just, you have to pull together. Um, and I think then, it's so big that comes back to raising children. Um, <laughs> that happens another whole can of worms. Um, we very much, you know, have done everything as a family. Um, so we are incredibly close. People even still comment now that the girls, they get on. They, you know, their best friends are their sisters. So in that regard, we have always shared everything with them. We've talked to them. We've explained, you know, Dan's been an absolute brilliant father for daughters like it's not an issue that they're four girls he just had four children in relation to working and everything on the land he's just taught and explained everything that they needed to know um, from feeding to fixing machinery etc and then the same as far as office and finances and 
our business planning and decisions, whether we buy or sell things, the kids have been a part of all of that from little. They've been a part of working and reward for effort. We've, we've been always been very big on that, you know, classic case. I suppose we've drilled into them and nothing, nothing in life is easy and you want to get a job done. The quicker we all get in and join together, the better. I can distinctly remember one day they were all in the yards and, um, I can't actually remember who was not quite pulling their weight, but anyhow, there were a couple of days in the yards and the girls were very good on the race and whatever. And um, at the end of the school holidays, we're going to give them some pocket money. Our quickest way of dealing with it, one that wasn't pulling her weight was we basically put $50 in the middle of the table and said, well, that's what you've earned for the holidays, but it doesn't mean you've earned it evenly. So you have to work out how you're going to, who, who has actually earned what out of that money. Oh, wow. And very quickly I went, oh, oh, well, okay. Well, she probably deserves this much and she deserves that much. And oh, geez. Okay. Um, so I think, I think that little trick from that day on, everyone's pulled their weight equally. So nice. <laughs> um, very simple. So, you know, boarding school fees, um, you know, every holidays, here's your bill, go to work, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. your, uh, your wages are in education. Um, so, you know, um, they've been involved with finances of the farm from a very early age and as simple as, as simple as reward for effort and a hard day's work, there's some money. It doesn't mean you all get it equally. You do have to work and you've got to put in. We'll be back in just a moment. But now, a word from today's sponsor, FarmBot. Life's too short to spend hours driving to check water. If you can reduce time on the road manually checking water, you can spend time doing other important jobs, including more time with family and actually being present for special events like birthdays. This is the key message FarmBot is hearing from women around Australia who are driving technology adoption on their stations from the homestead for the paddock. FarmBot provides graziers with a simple-to-install remote water monitoring device that detects leaks and faults in real time. Save time, fuel and labour costs and have peace of mind that your livestock have water. Spend more time at home, go on a holiday and check your water with FarmBot. Start the conversation about adopting FarmBot. Learn more at farmbot.com.au slash life on the land. Um, how does your, how many acres are, are you running and, and how many head at the moment? Uh, look, all up, Emily, I think there's, with the four places, there is about 104,000 acres. Um, the number of stock we run is uh, welcome to droughts and flooding rains. Um, the number of stock is forever fluctuating. Um, look, we've probably got, I think, about 800 breeders there at the moment, um, but we do trade um, every week. We actually do go through, um, our, our core business is through to a large domestic supermarket every week. So um, for us to keep sort of, producing that 75 to 150 head a week, which is what we do, which is average is about 100, a bit over a week. Um, we obviously, we can't breed that many. So, so Dan does buy every week. So we trade, we turn over a lot of cattle. Um, like in the feedlots at the moment, I think there could possibly be about 3,000 on feed. That's across the two feedlots. So one has a thousand head capacity um, and the other one's actually got a 5,000 head capacity, but we've only got it developed to about 2,000 head. And we're actually currently um, in the middle of developing the feedlot at Bombine and expanding that at the moment. 
Um, but, you know, it's hard to get cattle, so it's a good time to um, do that development work, which is, which is what we're doing. The girls have a wonderful system these days, though, the next generation. They've, you know, got something on their phone like an app with stock numbers everywhere. So if I ask them, they can hit a button and give me all of that information straight away. So um, teaching dad to take those sorts of things on has been a challenge, but, you know, they're getting there. Well, originally the decision to finish cattle in a feedlot did come from the old drought and, and flooding rains, didn't it? Um, we, would have, we would have started feedlotting, uh, look, over 20 years ago. Um, and again, that's it. Yes, we went into feedlotting because, again, you know, um, droughts, um, cattle need to be looked after. Um, and at that time, too, we were actually farming and there was probably 2,500 acres of farming and, and grain wasn't worth a lot. So we literally did start with the old paddock feeder and, and progressed really from there. And then, um, yeah, it's just growing and, and um, feedlotting for us gives us that capability um, to consistently supply a quality product through for consumer demand each week. As we regularly sort of um, through our social media, I suppose, in our connection with building our connections with city and country, we're um, forever talking about why we do what we do um, and, you know, reminding people that all cattle actually are, are born and raised on grass. And um, it's only in that last sort of 100 days that they may be in the feedlot that allows us to um, manage that consistent supply. Like we have to turn up every week with the same weight carcass. Um, and the only way of doing that is actually in a controlled managed environment. Um, and look, the feedlot helps us obviously manage the environment. You know, our, our paddocks don't get bare and flogged because, you know, we have, we have places to go when it is dry. You know, we're a passionate feedlotting family. Um, the girls, the girls don't, you know, even Molly the other day said, I, I don't even feel like it's a job. It's just what we do. And they love seeing the result of, of their hard work. Um, but, you know, they do consistently every week. We, we, you know, we put beef on the shelves of supermarkets. It does go to consumers. It's, it really does. It's a, a business where I suppose there's a lot of hard work, but you see that reward every, every single week of what you're doing. Well, the, the girls do work uh, on the place as well as study full time or, or working um, off farm as well. Tell me a little bit about uh, each of your four beautiful girls. Yes, we are very blessed to have four beautiful girls. Um, Bonnie is uh, 23 and um, she is currently like, they actually all still live. We <laughs> go back. Our house um, is like a little city, I suppose. So when they came home from boarding school, um, they got to have one year in the house. And um, after that, they had to sort of move out. So Bonnie lives in one donga building. Um, <laughs> we live in the main house. Um, and then Molly had her gap year and then she decided she didn't want to go to uni and she wanted to study at home as well. So we built another whole Donga complex, which we aptly call Bombine University. So um, she lives in that building um, on the place. So there's sort of um, eight Donga rooms and then we put a big office and kitchen. So the girls actually have that set up there and, and they study, they have studied externally from there. So um uh, they, they live at home. Um, the two eldest ones do anyhow at the moment. Um, the other two are away. So Bonnie's 23 and um, she has finished her primary teaching degree. So she does three days a week um, at two small schools in the district. And otherwise, the other four days she is, yep, feeding cattle, drafting cattle, trucking cattle, fixing fences, whatever's got to be done. Um, Molly, she's 21 and she is in her final year of her accounting degree. So um, they actually work full time and somehow manage to fit in their four subjects. Again, Molly feeds every day, does everything and 
they have to regularly remind dad that they might have assignments or exams or something to do that they actually really can't be in the yards all day. Um, Jemima, um, I was speaking to her earlier. She's on a grader for the last three days. So she's um, in Northern Queensland, North of Cloncurry, working with a Haken family and having the most wonderful time of her life. Um, just wanted to go um, working with another family and it's been immeasurable for her. She's had a ball, um, just learnt so many other skills. She's got a truck driving, a truck licence and um, apparently quite talented on a grader these days, which Dan <laughs> is very pleased to hear. So when she comes home, he knows another skill. Um, and, and her intention is to, um, yeah, finish up this year in the north and, and come home. And um, the last words were she was thinking agribusiness. So um, she'll look at starting that externally. But again, you know, we've got that much work here. We're really ready for her to come home and um, <laughs> help us. Um, Matilda uh, is finishing year 12. I'm so excited. After 11 years of boarding school fees, I don't know who is more excited. Um, <laughs> I'm sure Matilda, she think, thinks she is, but Dan and I are, are pretty up there with her. Um, so yeah, she will also be home. So um, come December, we'll have all of them back here technically um, living and working. So it's hard to believe. So um, Matilda has um, completed a certificate to an aircraft line maintenance while she's been finishing her year 12. Um, so she, her interest is very much in the flying space. So um, we'll see what next year brings. So um, Dan does fly. So um, yeah, she's keen to pursue that flying side of things. And yeah, as Dan said, they all four of them together just eat up the work. So I think he's really keen to have them all back and um, he will be looking for lots of work. So um, no, it'll be, it'll be really special to have them back. There is a real energy in the house when um, everybody is here. Lucky I have a big kitchen. They all sound like uh, such capable, confident, hard workers and, and all talented and, and with their own talents. But what's it like for you and Dan to, to know that all four of them want to come back and, and be on the land and, and work in, uh, I guess, the, 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 what you have both created over the last 16 years? Yeah, look, it's, it's mind-blowing. We <laughs> consciously actually sent them through... Um, to Brisbane to boarding school or Dan was very insistent on that. We also chose co-ed for a reason um, that, you know, living in a house of four girls that we were happy for them to just understand that life is about boys and girls. <laughs> um, and the school we chose is very multicultural, I suppose. And, and our, our point there was saying, look, go and look, you know, go and live in Brisbane, go and live in a city. There's a whole world out there. See, you know, see what you want to do. I, I think in doing that, um, <laughs> It has been the catalyst, I suppose, that sent them all back very quickly going, well, we don't want to live in a city and we don't want to do anything else. So um, they all passionately just love, love living in wide open spaces. People regularly ask them and all four of them, there's, they just, there's not a chance in Hades that any of them would ever go and live in a city. They just, they're never in the house. Like their day is, they just get up and go very much like their father. Like, you know, it's, it's no one's ever in the house for long, ever. They, you know, even Molly coming in for uni, you'll last about two hours and you'll oh, go and buy or go and shovel a trough or clean something or fix something or run a fence or strain a fence or they will find something else. It sounds like you and Dan have done, definitely done something right. And uh, your movement into branded, your own branded beat for daughters very much underpins uh, the future of 
of your farming enterprise and where you're headed with the four girls. Tell me a little bit about how your branded beef journey began. Um, Emily, our branded beef journey, um, we never ever set out with any intention of exporting beef anywhere in the world. Um, again, it was an opportunity. Um, we sort of also say to the girls, if an opportunity comes your way, oh, well, have a crack, see what can happen. And that's really exactly our story. Um, in 2018, um, Dan did attend Beef Week in Rocky. Short story, end of the day, everyone goes for a beverage. He was looking for somewhere to sit and there was only sort of one seat at a table where there, where there was a, a Chinese lady actually um, by herself. Dan being nosy sort of went over and said, oh, do you mind if I sit down? And um, he said, you don't have to talk to me, um, but just got sore feet. So she sort of pointed at the chair, that's fine. And, and he said, well, since I am sitting here, you know, you're obviously not from around here. What are you doing? Off started their conversation and the husband came back and um, they said that they were from Wuhan in China. That really even meant anything, obviously, at that stage. Um, and they were trying to um, buy beef direct from a grower. So Dan, you know, said, well, it's your lucky day. I feed lot cattle, so let's have a chat. After a lot of beers, I think, um, Frank was his name. He just kept buying beers and they do beers and cheers a lot. Well, that night he actually phoned and said, I've, there's an email that's come through. I've met a Chinese couple. They're coming to home. And I said, oh, I've put that in the bin straight away. It all came through in Chinese. Like it went directly to the, you know, junk spam, gone straight away. The next day they got in a car and turned up and um, hence began 12 months, I suppose, of us communicating with them. They visited sort of two or three times, trying to work through how we could develop a branded beef product with them and to send that to China. Um, so yeah, Dan thought it was simple. Let's just sell beef to China. Um, and little did we know what journey we were about to embark on and um, the challenges that were about to come our way in the world of trying to export beef. Well, I'm completely naive when it comes to um, the logistics and the nuances of the international export market. Was this endeavour anything like you realised and what were some of the biggest challenges? Um, Emily, you, as you say, you were naive. I'm going to tell you I was also totally naive. Knew nothing, absolutely at all. Um, now feel I should have an international business degree, a pretend one. Um, look, it's um, challenges. It's, it's been insane. Um, the list is long. However, a quick summary, I suppose, I sort of say it's been like a mystery tour. Yeah, uh, a mystery tour with lots of dead ends where we back up and, and go again and back up and go again. So um, it was all, all great to find somebody who wanted to buy our beef. That was in the whole grand scheme. That was a simple part of the, the process. To find a processing facility or an abattoir where um, independent farmers could actually process, we found that was our first big hurdle that you know, discovered really that abattoirs are nearly all, well, they are nearly all corporate owned and um, very much large companies who just buy beef from farmers and um, have their own brands and, and sell. So there really was no space in that, in that process for producers, I suppose. So after lots of looking, we did eventually find um, an opportunity through Northern Co-op in Casino. So we did, we did find a processing facility. Um, then we had to learn and understand about um, we call it specs, but that's specifications of exactly how this meat is to be processed for your customer. So your customer will have requirements of exactly how they would like that to be processed. Learn about in Australia, we actually have a book called the ham book, H-A-M, and it's the ham book of Australian meat. And it's how meat is traded across the world. Um, again, as farmers who grew cattle, none of us knew anything about the ham book and about mm. trading meat across the world. So um 
we learn a lot about ham codes and specifications in a hurry. Then we um, had to learn about uh, logistics and shipping. So it was one thing to finally find a processing plant, work out what specifications um, your customers wanted and to work with the processing facility to do, achieve that. Like, um, you know, the work the abattoirs do do is, is huge and it, it's, it's massive on their behalf and, and it would definitely be challenging for them to take on, on smaller operators. So, you know, we appreciate it immensely being given the opportunity because once you're, um, you're there, you understand how hard it is. Mm. Um, I will go back. Dan and I, as we say, we have a crack at a few different things. We did buy an abattoir once, um, a domestic abattoir. Um, and that was another 18 months of holy geez, hold on for the ride. And, um, another learning curve and I swore I would never deal with meat again after that experience. Um, but anyhow, here I am going again. Um, and now in the international scene. So, um, yeah, getting your head around logistics and then actually moving meat from one side of, you know, from Australia to the other side of the world and all of the documentation, um, that's required, um, is just another whole can of worms. So, um, look, it's been, incredibly challenging um but you know we've we've learned so much i mean that's the next thing you know um yeah I, I, you don't know what you don't know and i didn't know anything about um exporting or processing processing for export um and now i can say i know a little bit and i probably still have a heck of a lot more to learn well amongst or amid all of the challenges uh and i guess uh particularly with where the meat was going then covid struck um and and also the 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 trade battles between china and australia with beef processing um australian beef processors shut down how have you navigated through that and and how did you pivot and what did, challenges did that throw up uh, look, it's been an incredible journey. Like we'll go back to, to 2019 when we did actually go to Wuhan and, and we spent a week in Wuhan. So, you know, we flew into Guangzhou and didn't even know where Guangzhou was, then find an internal flight to Wuhan, again, having no idea where that was. And, um, and this was central China. Um, so to spend a week in central China where we didn't see another Caucasian person at all, um, there was not one sign of in any English writing. We were just treated incredibly well. We were um, their guests and um, we could not, you know, thank Frank and Nisha highly enough. Like they were just the most wonderful humans and, and everyone we met over there, they were, they were fantastic people. That was the, the March of 2019 and we had our first container arrive in the May of 2019. Um, and look, it went terrifically well. And um, we started sort of with 54 head, then we went to 75 head in another container, then I think 84, then 100, then 125. So things were um, really ramping up. It was going great guns. Um, and then December, um, we sort of, we communicated regularly with them sort of nearly every, well, definitely every week, could have nearly been each day via WeChat. Um, and they sort of said there was this virus, we'll be honest, we really didn't, didn't believe it was going to be that bad because when we were in Wuhan, like we, um, we couldn't get over the smog, I suppose. And, and we came back and like we were coughing and we could hardly breathe. So we decided it was just the air that um, <laughs> wow. was this COVID. No one over there could breathe anyhow. Like we thought we were going to die without COVID. When it really did um, seriously turn obviously into what we're all still living with now, 
um, yeah, it definitely provided the challenges for them. So um, at that stage, we probably had 600 head on feed to go through to them. Uh, they no longer needed all of that supply. Um, we did find another buyer there who took um, some meat, some into Hong Kong and some into China. Uh, and then, yep, after we were sort of trying to navigate that, yeah, the geopolitical world bought the, the ban on... Um, which did impact um, the processing facility, which we were able to use. So at that point, that really was, okay, what are we going to do now? Look, we spoke to every processing facility. We didn't go obviously to Victoria, New South Wales, due to logistics, that's not possible, but everybody in Queensland, we sort of couldn't find any immediate solutions. So we did have to um, sell those cattle through to a, a larger player in the game, a large processing um, plant. It actually went to a couple of buyers. Um, and then, yes, look, we developed a thing called our, our pink box, our pink beef box. So it, it really was never going to um, replace our export market. But we thought, what can we do with this, this meat that was going to China? So um, a little pivot. We worked out how to basically get one carcass into how many boxes, trying to use all those cuts. So um, hence, we developed our Four Daughters pink beef box just as a way to connect with consumers. and we hired trucks and we started driving around. Um, we set up a shop online and driving around and selling beef. Um, and yeah, we're still sort of doing that today. We do it every two months. Um, it's in, again, it's incredibly hard, you know, the longevity and can you keep doing this? Um, and then it, it's turned into probably more than just selling beef um, for us. It's, it's been a really interesting journey. Another part of the journey, which was not what we were expecting, was um, very much connecting with, with city consumers. Um, we've been absolutely blown away um, by their interest and, and wanting to know about life on the land and they're wanting to know about food production. Um, so it's nearly past an obligation of, it's nearly past just selling meat and, and we're feeling like it's, a, it's a, our obligation really to connect city and country and to help share the great story of agriculture and and help share that the image of a farmer, intelligent, um, educated, business-minded, yep, summer girls. Um, and it's not just our story that we try to share. We try to very much help connect everybody in the city to understand that everybody in the land, you know, we're all hardworking, smart. We may be silly because we keep doing it. However, someone has to feed them. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's that whole social media presence was never on our agenda. Um, I wasn't even on Facebook three years ago. So um, not only do I feel like I've got an um, uh, international marketing degree and a logistics degree, I'm learning a lot about social media, which, um, yeah, I still have a long way to go with that as well. But, um, yeah, we're getting better. But, um, yeah, uh, using it to connect with city and country. I really love this idea, you know, that's perfectly summarises um, the paddock to plate ethos that people really love Providence and they love, I think that's something that's come out of COVID is people really love supporting small, they love supporting local and, and they like to know where their food is coming from. How important has, um, I guess, sharing the story behind the brand been for Four Daughters and the use of social media? Sounds like it's been exceptionally um well, pivotal, really. Look, we had no idea how powerful the story would be um, at all. 
you know, again, when we started, um, we started working with uh, Toowoomba and Surat Basin Enterprises um, through the Emerging Exporters Program. Um, we had already started, started exporting, but I was like, oh my goodness, I've just got myself in so deep, I needed help. So um, from asking around, I found a, a beautiful person by the name of Geraldine Damani, and sadly she's since left this earth, um, but she was just uh, um, golden in helping, helping us through those first hurdles um, and her she would always say you know what's your point of difference and I'd say I don't have a point of difference I'm like every other farmer we grow beef you know we have cattle you know I what do you mean what's my point of difference um, and I suppose we have a lot to thank for her that she sort of said no you do you've got this story you've got an amazing story you've got four girls who want to stay on the land who who want to grow food look at them they're here they're real and she was probably the one that you went oh okay righto I, I might have a point of difference. Um, but I, I mean, again, we don't. We've just got four girls that, that want to do this. So I suppose little did we know the power of, of branding and little did we know the power of sharing a story. And mm. we would never, ever have believed um, um, the, I suppose, the connections you can make through a story. Um, as going back, I suppose, the brand was named Four Daughters originally um, because when we did have our um, business associates from Wuhan, when they would visit, um, they were just blown away by the girls. They, first of all, I suppose, that were four redhead girls. Um, <laughs> but the girls would come into the house of the morning and everyone just said to cook breakfast here every day and everyone just comes in and everyone's, because they're cereal, then bacon, eggs, toast, cup of tea, then you walk out the door, then you hang the washing out and then they would go to work and, you know, they'd be on tractors or loaders or in cattle yards. And, um, and then they would come home at the end of the day and walk past the clothesline, get their washing off the line and come in and, and cooking dinner here is a team effort. So whoever's around, um, we all just chip in. So, um, yeah, they were blown away by the girls. Hence, um, they sort of said, you know, they were also instrumental in, in helping us brand our, our beef that they said it's, you know, it needs to be about four daughters. Um, and again, it was the, um, yeah, the, their appeal, I suppose. Um, but to the girls, they're just doing what they do. There's honestly, it, there's um, no fuss, just get on with it. And yeah, that's what they do. I think that is just such a golden nugget um, of advice looking for your point of difference, even though you think that your story isn't unique because you live it every day for somebody living in Wuhan or Brisbane it is such a special story and a very moving story. So I think that's um, a, a really, yeah, a vital piece of information for our Grazy Her community listening in today to maybe think about their own branding journey. Tell me what, in your opinion, you know, is the future of ag, Aussie ag looking like and what do you think we need to do to keep it strong? Oh, look, I think the future's huge. Um, I also think it's huge because there are so many young people. We've, we really have had that shift that there are so many young people that want to stay on the land. Like it's, um, you know, there was a phase there where everyone was leaving the land and um, it wasn't the place to be and let's all go to the city because it's hard and tough. I'm not really even sure how it's come about because these kids have lived through a lot of droughts and, and these kids have grown up with it and they've, you know, they've, they've put in the hard yards through drought. However, it, it hasn't turned them off, which is quite amazing. And, um, and it's not just our kids. This is our story. Like there's our whole community here. So many young people are back. Um, 
Jemima the year in the north. There's just so many, so many young people that want to keep growing food, mm. um, which is just so fortunate for everybody, you know, in cities. And I think that's what we need to share with them that, you know, people in the cities are so lucky that there is this next generation that actually want to do this because mm. otherwise their food, where's their food going to come from? We, yeah. we don't want to be importing that food. It's, it's got to be grown in Australia, whether it be lettuce, carrots, cotton, wheat, all parts of ag, fish. It's not just beef, it's everything. And um, we're just, you know, I, I think that's why the future of ag is, is so strong. There's because of that next generation. And they are educated and they are smart and they're passionate and they care about the environment and they want it to be there forever. Mm. Mm. So, no, I think it's... Um, Oh, it's, it's, and they know it's not going to be easy. I think that's the ironic part is they know they're choosing a life that is, um, it's always going to be challenging. It's always going to be hard, but they're choosing that even once they've lived it, um, they're choosing that that's what they want to do. So yeah, I think ag is in a great place. I was chatting to Sandra Irison yesterday, who is the co-founder of Hay Inc. down near Hay. And she was saying that she thinks another silver lining of COVID has been that a lot of young people who would have perhaps travelled or taken their gap year overseas or gone ranching in um, Canada or, you know, a lot of our Aggies maybe it would have shot off OS uh, have stayed local and uh, are playing in the rugby teams and shopping in the shops and, and working um, as Jack Roos and Jill Roos. And I think that's probably something that you're seeing up north as well. In terms of the international export market, will you proceed? Will you keep giving it a crack? Is it something that is in the pipeline for the future? Yeah, look, Emily definitely is. Look, the demand still overseas is huge. Um, all of us in the beef industry at the moment know that we've got challenges in pricing um, because Australian beef has never been so high. Um, so we do have to work or play in that international space. Um, however, Australian beef still has the has definitely, you know, not even the image, it is known as clean, green, sustainable food. So, um, you know, if, if we could still be processing, we've got no shortage of um, Chinese interest. That, that's just growing and growing and growing. Um, so we're also obviously just through to processing challenges. Um, we're yeah, looking at Korea at the moment um, because we, we can service that. So look, we're hoping still to have, um, you know, um, two 40-foot containers to export before the end of the year. Um, and we're also then looking at another, another brand like a Four Daughters Blue, which is more just a 100-day grain-fed and, and we're having some chats um, through to Indonesia on that. Um, mm. um, so, yes, so we're still very much looking at that export space. It hasn't gone away. Oh, awesome. Well, Karen, you know, it's just been, it's been so, such a pleasure to chat with you. And honestly, the, the future of Australian ag is certainly in very strong and capable hands, especially with your next generation of women coming through. So thank you so much for the chat today. That's okay. I seriously love these conversations. I always learn something. If I took anything away from my chat with Karen, it's the grit that comes from giving things a crack. These guys sure appreciate the work behind perseverance. I was pretty naive when it comes to the gnarly underbelly of independent export, and I take my hat off to all those who wade through the systems and processes to get there. 
the Penfolds deserve their success. As always, please rate and review Now You've Listened to Us Wax Lyrical. It'll just take a minute and makes a massive difference to others finding us. We so appreciate it. The next issue of Grazy Co magazine has hit shelves across the nation. In it, you'll spot the Penfold story and its cracking photos. I'm so nosy and love seeing the faces behind the names and voices of the podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe online at grazyherd.com.au. Until next time, keep well. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company. <laughs> <laughs>